My name is Mike, and I'm the campus pastor here at uh, the Bray campus. And uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel. We are finishing off our series on the life of David. We've been going through the life of David in a series that we are uh, calling um, Becoming a Person After God's Own Heart. I have important business to do right now, which is to show you a really cute baby picture because my wife just had our first child, and thank you. It was really hard work, much, much, a lot of hard work. So this is Soren, S-O-R-E-N, and it's a German name, and this is Dietrich, another German name. This is my dog, our poodle, uh, getting used to the baby. And uh, I don't even know what to say about it because, like, the dust has not settled on having a baby because it just happened, like, after church, uh, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before. And so um, they say that preachers, you know, they always have this weird habit of uh, talking about their kid, like, as soon as they have a kid, every sermon ends up being about their kid. And so get ready. Um, uh, so I just really appreciate being a part of this community. We've had so many text messages in a time where if you've had kids, you know, you lack sleep and there's a lot of uncertainty or even anxiety and that sort of thing. And we've just been inundated with really encouraging calls and text messages and um, a few meals and that sort of thing just because you guys really care about us. You love, you love my wife well, and uh, I'm grateful for that and just really appreciative to be a part of um, Ambassador Brea. So thank you guys. Um, I, I won't show you any more pictures today, and uh, we, we, if I say anything ridiculous, it's because we're operating on a low level of sleep right now. And so thank you for your grace in advance. Um, today we're talking about the end of the book of 2 Samuel, but we're also uh, spending the majority of our time as a meditation on Psalm 23. It's unclear at what point in the story arc that is David's life, David wrote Psalm 23, but it's evident that at the point he penned that psalm, his head was on straight. His relationship with God was going well. He has enemies, but he trusts in the Lord. He's going through dark valleys, and he's indicating that through the psalm, but he trusts the Lord. He knows who God is, and he's got his head on straight in terms of believing in the biblical God. And so um, we're going to talk about the end of 2 Samuel, but we'll also kind of finish our time or spend the majority of our time not overly tearing through every part of Psalm 23, because I think sometimes you can exegete and pull every little part out of a psalm and kind of remove the beauty of it. Uh, more or less, my hope is that we just meditate on how God wants to reveal himself to us this morning in Psalm 23. In the end, uh, when we look at the end of 2 Samuel, we see the end of this story regarding David's life. We're talking about the subject of finishing well. Finishing well, which is kind of a man-made concept that people talk about a lot, about how to finish your life on a high note, how to not just do the typical kind of arc of uh, Western American life, which is that you work really hard, you gain some stuff, and then you retire from that job that kind of was your whole life, and then you'll just kind of circle the drain until you die. There's got to be a better story to your life than that, and certainly the Bible proposes something different. And so today we're talking about finishing well, which is just a, a way to say, how do we stay on track in our lives? Today, when trials hit, in different seasons of life, so that we can look back on our lives and be proud of not just the stuff that we did, but of the stuff that God did. And we see that the subject comes up because David did not necessarily finish well in terms of the work that God did in his life. There's an arc to it where he had some successes. God did some amazing things, David and Goliath, and then David and Bathsheba. And then, uh, as we'll see, um, there's kind of a decline to the end of David's life. 
there was a popular book in the 90s about um, how to manage your life called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. A lot of business folks and people who really wanted to manage their life well read this book in the 90s. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of the uh, habits in the book is beginning with the end in mind. The advice was to begin with the end in mind. The point is that you can waste a lot of your life and waste a lot of your time, energy, emotional energy, and money if you lose track of the end goal, if you lose track of the purpose of what you're doing at work or even lose track of the purpose of your life. And I find that to be true in the Christian life. That uh, if you lose track of the big picture why behind your life, then it can cause you to misplace your priorities, get distracted with negative relationships, get caught up in drama that otherwise doesn't serve your life in a positive way, spend hours upon hours with entertainment that maybe is good in the short run but is, is not necessarily helpful in building the kind of life that you want long term. So the, the advice was beginning with the end in mind. I'll use a, a metaphor to explain. It, it explains that just like doing a puzzle, helps to have the end picture in front of you. You know, when you do a puzzle, you do all the outside pieces because that's the easiest part. And then after that, you start looking at the colors of the finished product and you say, okay, there's a big tree, so I'm going to bunch up all the green pieces, put them over here, and then I can make the tree. There's a house over here, I can bunch those up. And it helps you to finish a puzzle and have the end result be something that's beautiful because you're constantly looking at that final product and saying, how do I get from this mess to the vision of something that's more beautiful and put together, namely the, the completion of the puzzle? Life is the same way, that uh, if we have the end result in mind, God's vision for who you are, God's vision for your identity and how you can spend your life in a fruitful way. Uh, spend your time, your money, your relationships, and, and look back on a life where you're proud of what you did or what God has done in your life. That'll be a more fruitful way, and you have to do that by, or the only way to do that is by beginning and working with the end in mind. The reality, of, cor of course, is that many of us look back on years of our lives with some level of regret. And if that's how you feel, you're not alone. You might look back on this year and say, where did that time go? Or you might look back on a whole season of life and say, I spent a lot of my time in unforgiveness and bitterness towards my parents. Or disappointment about where my career's at. If we begin and work with the end in mind, or another way to say it, if we finish well with God's vision for our life, the hope is that there's a joy to be had there's a, there's a purpose to be maintained in every situation in our life. The three points that we're going to walk through today is if you want to finish well in your life, we need to uh, have these three ingredients. Grace, God's gracious provision, His guiding presence, and His guaranteed promise. Finishing well in life comes when we trust in His gracious provision, His guiding presence, and His guaranteed promise. Uh, to finish off 2 Samuel, I'd like to ask Pastor uh, Resident Daniel Ostell to come up and tell us about what's going on in the final chapters of 2 Samuel, chapters 13, all the way to chapters 24. Round of applause for Pastor Daniel Ostell, by the way. Appreciate you. Thanks, thanks. Well, um, Mike decided to give me the, the fun and easy task of summing up 12 chapters in about eight minutes. So <laughs> I was reading through um, chapters 13 through 24, and I thought, huh, it might be interesting to try to tell this as best as I can, as if I were David. So as best as I can, I'm going to try to do that. 
So let me go ahead and, and get David, and, and he's going to come out and do that. So. Hello. Uh, I am uh, David, the son of Jesse, of the tribe of Judah, the king of Israel. You may have heard of me if you read the Bible at all. And I want to share with you what's been going on in my life over the last few years. You see, I think, I think you have heard about my failings because I recently committed sin against the Lord. I committed adultery and murder. And since then, things have not gotten any better. In fact, they have gotten worse within my own home. It hasn't just been my failings, but my children have now failed each other, failed me, and they failed the Lord. You see, one day my son Amnon fell ill, at least I thought he did. And he called and had me come to him, and as I visited, he said, Father, please send my favorite sister Tamar to take care of me. I'd like to, I'd like to see her. And she just, she cooks so well. I really love the cakes that she makes. I, th I thought nothing of it, so I sent her. And as she was nursing him back to health and taking care of him, he sent his household out. So it was just the two of them. And he violated her and forced himself upon her. And instead of doing anything to make it right, he then scorned her and resented her and sent her away, hating her. I became furious, but what is a father to do when a son has done such a thing to his sister? And I, I'm no better man than him. I mean, you just heard that I had committed adultery and murder, so I did nothing. I did nothing. Two years went by, and my, my son Absalom, born of the same mother of Tamar, was furious with me. And he couldn't stand it any longer that justice had not been brought to his brother Amnon. So he devised a plan. He gathered all of his siblings together. And in a, a time of feasting, he stood up and in front of them all, killed his brother Amnon with the sword. But that day, I didn't just lose one son. I also lost Absalom. Because the consequence was that he ran for his life. He didn't know what to do at that point other than just take revenge. So he fled to the land of Geshur. And there he stayed for some time. But... I still loved my son, and I longed for him, even though he had done this terrible thing, 
He was doing it out of a, a heart of trying to be just and make things right. So time went by and I was longing more and more for Absalom to return and my good friend and general of the military, Joab, had a woman come and convince me that I should bring Absalom back. So I did. I sent men to bring him back. And he came back home, but I didn't see him. I actually didn't see him for two years. I didn't know how to face him, so I sent him to his house. And over time, those two years, he, he was becoming more and more frustrated with me, and his resentment towards me was growing. And he came to see me, and I greeted him and I, with a hug and a kiss, and I welcomed him back into his duties, and I gave him his roles back, and he was judging matters in the kingdom, and he was, again, a prince, one that people loved and favored. He was not only my best-looking son, but he was winsome as well. And like I said, he was resenting me still. His resentment was growing, and I found that out because he started winning the hearts of men to himself, away from me. And he decided to stage a revolt. And what am I to do with my own son coming to take my life? He's my son. I, I couldn't bear the thought of fighting my own son. So I fled. I left. He and his men stormed into Jerusalem, and I left with my family, the royal guard, and those who were still faithful into the countryside to hide. I had left 10 of my concubines behind to tend for the palace, and Absalom did a wicked thing. His advisor told him, assert yourself as king of Israel. And by doing that, you should take your father's concubines as your own and sleep with them in front of the nation on top of the palace. And that's what he did. Time went by again and I was hiding with my people and rallying troops and Absalom came. And we've clashed. An Israelite was killing Israelite. And I didn't want my son to be harmed, though. So I told my men, do not lay a finger on him. Whatever you do, make sure he is safe. But he was in the forest. And he got caught up in the dense woods. And my trusted friend, Joab, went after him and put three javelins through his heart. When I heard of this, I was brokenhearted. My son was killed. I, I would have given him the kingdom 
Why couldn't I have been the one that died that day? But that was not the Lord's will. So I took my place as king again, and there was unrest in Israel, and trouble was on the horizon. Not only was there unrest amongst my people, but again, I had the Philistines attacking. And in battle against the Philistines, a certain Philistine made it his desire and his goal to kill me. He was a massive man, and he had his, a giant spear, and each strike of the spear was like that of a bull against my shield. I had become weak, and two of my men had to rescue me. After that, my men promised that they would never let me into battle again. And these hands that had once slayed the bear and the lion and Goliath are now old and feeble and weak. I had lost sons. I had lost trust. And now I had lost my strength. And still, I've continued to make poor choices as king. Even though the Lord forbids kings to take a census of fighting men, I, I did that. I took a census to number how many men I could employ in the army. And the Lord's anger raged against me and he gave me three options for punishment. He sent the prophet Gad to tell me, you can have three years of famine in your land, three months of being pursued by your enemies, or three days of a plague. And I've been pursued by enemies before, and I don't want to fall into the hands of men. So I said, Lord, it's in your hands, whatever you will. So he sent a plague, and 70,000 people died because of my sin. And still in all of this, I wrote words in a, of a song, and these words stuck with me as I tried to make amends and, and confess my sin. And remember that the Lord is good, even though I have not finished well. The words are this, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From violent men you rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his great king victories. 
He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Dave, thank you, David. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about kind of a, a bizarro alternate reality scenario where what would David's life have looked like if he followed Psalm 23 and finished well. And obviously the application for us this morning is how do we make a plan and set our lives up in such a way that we finish well, and that we stay true to God's calling and God's will in our lives to the very end. Um, if you'll turn your Bibles now to Psalm 23, we're going to read this passage and then work through it talking about finishing well and how we need God's gracious provision, his guiding presence, and his guaranteed promise. And again, my prayer with our passage is not that we just tear apart the passage and intellectually dig into every little part about how is God a shepherd and what are shepherds and then what's a, what's a staff look like and, uh, and that sort of thing. What are sheep like? But uh, to really just let the passage wash over us a bit to say, God, what do you want to teach me this morning? How do you want to reveal yourself to me in a more powerful way than I understand? And that's especially needed in a psalm where a lot of people have put this psalm on a lot of rugs and a lot of wall hangings and a lot of mugs in grandma's house. Uh, it can be trite. It can be un, uh, lose its impact uh, if we take it out of its context from the real life of David. So with that prayer, let's read our passage. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's gracious provision is hugely important to us staying on track with God's will and finishing well. When God, simply put, is your shepherd, your life willfully depends on his gracious provision and his guidance above your own. Let me say that one more time. When God is your shepherd, like David says in verse one, your life willfully depends on his provision and his direction for your life. When you read the Psalm, in the beginning of verse one, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, in the ancient Near East, kings and rulers and monarchs were oftentimes referred to as or referred to themselves as shepherds because what that portrays is that they love their people as a king, and so they take care of their sheep. So now what is David saying? I'm not your shepherd. I'm the king. I'm the anointed one over Israel for this time, but the Lord is my shepherd. Well, then by implication, what does that mean for our lives? If David, King David, made it into the Bible, if he's a sheep, what does that make us? At least sheep. At least other lower functioning sheep. So David is saying, don't exalt me as king. The Lord is my shepherd. And by implication, I am his sheep. And then everything else from the passage kind of comes from that single point. It starts out with the main thesis. 
so to speak. And then it expands on that idea. And so the question is, with Lord as our shepherd then, well, what is the result? And if you look through verses 1, 2, and 3, you'll see. He says, I shall not be in want. And he makes me lie down in green pastures, pastures and besides quiet, beside quiet waters, he restores my soul, guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Uh, Philip Keller wrote an interesting book a while back. He was once a shepherd himself, and he wrote a book called The Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, and he goes on to explain what the life of a shepherd looks like and how it relates to understanding the passage of Psalm 23. This is important because we are culturally, socially, historically removed from shepherds. I mean, just by show of hands, does anyone know a shepherd? And besides your visit to New Zealand, have you seen a sheep in like the last 10 years? No, right? We're completely removed from all of those things. Uh, so the book helps us kind of dig back into that world. And he says, the interesting thing about a shepherd is you have to understand, especially in the ancient world, a shepherd is constantly living with his sheep. So much so that the sheep recognize his voice. And there are times when a shepherd would just, uh, would be behind the sheep and would use his staff and his, uh, you know, to, to hit the sheep and kind of say, hey, here's the direction that we're going. But sometimes also a shepherd would walk ahead of the sheep, prepare a way for those sheep, and then use his voice, his or her voice, to bring the sheep to say, hey guys, come over here. And they would recognize his voice because he's with those sheep for his entire life. Secondly, a shepherd is invested in the sheep. There's so much money, so much livelihood invested into those little sheep that that's everything for a shepherd. And so that, a shepherd is going to spend time with all of those sheep. He's going to make sure that they recognize his voice because his whole livelihood is there. And we know, whether it's from people trying to steal your sheep or from foxes trying to break, its, break their way into the pack, a shepherd, a good shepherd, is going to lay his life down for those sheep, at least lay uh, at risk of his life, because his whole livelihood is sunk into the value of these sheep. Now we start to see maybe some coloring in the lines of what it means for the Lord to be our shepherd. A shepherd would keep eye contact with the sheep, uh, would get up onto a higher position, stand on a rock to make sure the sheep could all uh, look at him, and that would be a way for the sheep to calm down enough to be guided in a certain direction, but also, um, if, as he describes in the book, sheep have to be calm enough to even rest because of their anxiety. Unless a number of circumstances are correct within those sh with the sheep's life, they will never lay down in a green pasture and calm down. They can't be too dense because then they get all nervous and claustrophobic. They have to be spread out just enough. The, the, if, the, if the grass is too tall, they have an innate ability to kind of go, there's snakes or some animals that could kill us. They're just constantly anxious and they won't lay down and rest unless the cir circumstances are perfect. And a shepherd does that. In, in essence, a shepherd to the sheep is everything. A guide, a counselor, a healer, a provider of food, somebody who goes and, and charts the course and, um, and certainly lays his life down for those sheep if necessary. So God, David says, is my, in the possessive, my shepherd. I guess the question is, uh, at the outset of the psalm, is he your shepherd? Is God that to you? Because previously in the psalms, God is a rock, God is a fortress, God is an impersonal force at times in the psalms. And then as you read through the book of psalms, this is the first time where God 
is revealed as a shepherd. Is he a shepherd to you? And if not, why not? I wonder if there's a, a time in your life where God didn't provide in a way that you expected and because your path didn't take a plan that you had that maybe you thought, maybe God is a bad shepherd. Or maybe you thought, um, I, I'm, church is difficult because everyone's sh- sheep. <laughs> and so church can be messy and kind of be weird because it's just a, a herd of sheep. And the nature of sheep is that they're always straying. Like 80% of the job of a shepherd is probably just getting the outlier sheep and saying, I know you have your own vision for your life. I know you, uh, you maybe look at the other sheep and you say, I'm not like those sheep. I have my own path. And then the shepherd in love taps you with his cane or, or hits you in a way that you need to get back to a place where you can thrive and you can live. Self-righteousness in our lives is always um, a sheep who thinks that he or she is a high-functioning sheep and isn't plagued with all the problems that these other sheep have. And a good, loving shepherd would remind the sheep, you are a sheep and you're a defenseless and, and you're spiritually and physically needy. I know this firsthand just by a random happenstance, um, stupid story, but a serious point, that uh, in my, I was at a church one time and I was the youth pastor, you know, like um, the 20-something-year-old youth pastor that uh, loves the teenagers, helps them grow in their faith. And so we got some teenagers together in the room. We said, we think it's important for you to reach out to your friends and invite them into the community of the church so they can see what it's like to be in a Christ-like community and to know God. And so they, their idea of inviting some friends and doing something special was uh, a game called Bigger Better. And uh, basically, they went out and invited all of their friends from this town. This is on the central coast here in California. And I think it was one of the bigger things we had ever done as a little youth group. And so like 200 kids showed up to a youth room that holds, I think, like 35 people. And so it was just a packed group of people and all kinds of cars that were chaperones driving kids around because the concept is the game lasts for about three or four hours. You start with a paperclip. And then in the span of those three or four hours, you trade that paperclip for uh, something that's bigger or better. And the rule is they have to keep the item that you have, and you get to keep the item that they give you. And so all of a sudden, some of these students are like on the phone calling all these people that they know. Listen, we got a, an 80cc motorcycle. It doesn't run. We'll, what will you trade us? for? Then they're bartering all over town, cars driving all over the place, 200 and so kids in their mom's SUV, trying to barter with everyone that they know, trying to trade up. By the end of the game, the second place finisher in the game that had the second best prize was a mom that rolled in with a carload of kids and in the back were three full-size live sheep. Because they went to someone's house and in this town it was like urban center, a pretty quick suburb and then outside of that was some rural areas. Well, they drove out to the rural area and said, what can you give us? We have a baseball glove. And then this guy said, I've been looking to get rid of these sheep for some time. And so he, they, these 14-year-old boys, like an SUV full of 14-year-old boys, runs into the pen and just, and just grabs like a full, dirty, old, puffy sheep and then puts it into the back of their mom's Toyota Tundra. And then, I mean, of course, immediately a sheep is just going to like go to the bathroom all over mom's car. You know, it was a real mess, uh, a mess that I didn't clean up. And, uh, 
So they bring him into the youth room and they round the corner and the kids are just like the hands out the window before they even pull in like, we're going to win. Nobody else is going to bring back live sheep, three live sheep for this, uh, for this game. And so they come in and they unload him or whatever. They bring him on stage at church and they were like standing proudly as they showed off their, their prize. Here's the point about sheep. Uh, if you can be abducted by like three or four 14-year-old boys, you are helpless, right? You, you are defenseless. That is an easy group of people to dominate. They're like 90 pounds soaking wet. And these sheep were just completely abducted. Their lives changed. Uh, side note, I learned how to sell sheep on Craigslist that evening, uh, $50 a piece. And then other side note, the first place uh, team <laughs> rolled in with like an 18-foot Bayliner ski boat, <laughs> which was like, okay, you win. <laughs> like They stalked somebody into giving them their boat. Anyways, it was just random. Sold that on Craigslist as well. That was great. Um, sheep are defenseless. That's the point. And I know that uh, there's a, a perspective on Christianity that's like saying, the Bible's always tearing you down and not allowing you to reach your full human potential. Somebody needs to pat you on the butt and say, you're good enough, you're smart enough, doggone it, people like you. But understand, there is a truth and a good news part of the fact that you're a sheep and you're defenseless, and that is that God is a shepherd. If God were a bad shepherd, or if God had abandoned you, or if God were not powerful enough over your life circumstances, it would be lonely and, and you'd feel abandoned at being a sheep that's defenseless. But when you combine the fact that in reality, we are like sheep, that we have our own plans and sometimes they draw us into places that are destructive, uh, sometimes we, we don't know what to do with our lives, and when you ask us, hey, what, what is the meaning of your life? We, we can't pull together a meaningful, real answer outside of what Scripture gives us. Like when you combine that with the fact that God has acted as a loving provider, that's good news. Because you're not alone. Because you have a God who's with you. A God whose voice you recognize from Scripture. And a God who has laid his life down for your life. And that's why when we read Psalm 23, but we have heard John 10, we recognize Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. He's Jesus saying to a bunch of people who have probably memorized 10 times over the Hebrew in Psalm 23. He's saying, you know the good shepherd. You know the shepherd of Psalm 23, the shepherd over King David. I am the truer and better shepherd who's with you and provides for you and whose voice you can recognize and who you can know. So, the Lord is my shepherd. Side note, before we move on to another point, finishing well in life comes in recognizing that even your greatest successes in life are God's provision. I think there's, it's easy for us to say, surely I get some credit for the good choices I've made and the good things that have happened in my life. I went to a good school. I'm savvy. I made the right connections in life. And so surely my hard work, and I stayed up, I did the all-nighters, I got the grades, I worried enough to make sure that I got the paper in at time. Surely there's some credit I can have. I'm, I'm not just a sheep, but even in that, just recognize. Who gave you the brain that helped you pass the test? And is that a level of intelligence guaranteed to you, entitled to you? No. Who gave you the family that taught you how to be a good dad or a good mom? Who orchestrated for you the circumstances to, to allow you to learn a few things, to put some string together, some successes in your life? Or then, big picture, 
who allowed you to be born in a developed country in 2019? In the end, these are things that are not really things you control. And I think if we just back up for a bit, we can recognize some of our greatest successes are things that we tend to take credit for, but really are the provision of God, even in those little things. If, to the extent that we recognize this is God's provision, we can finish well, because we'll always stay on track with understanding that God is the provider, and only He can do that. Take a look in the first three verses. You'll see that um, there's a lot of he in verses one, two, and three. So if we're talking about taking credit for the successes in our lives, uh, look how much God does. The Lord is my shepherd, and because of that I shall not want. And what does a sheep do in the process of being in green pastures? Well, all the sheep does is listen to the shepherd say, lie down here. He makes me lie down. He says, lie down. And then he says, time to get up. We're going over here. And then he goes over there. That's what the sheep does. And then God kind of says, hey, how do you feel right now? You go, well, my soul feels pretty restored. Thank you. (laughs) And then he guides me in paths of righteousness. I just think it's so neat. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Important to recognize that David breaks the metaphor a bit because righteousness is not a thing that you would typically think of a sheep. And so he's breaking the metaphor to use a word uh, to say, even the righteousness in my life is a path that God takes me down. And there's a larger theology in the Bible behind this, but just recognize that even the righteous things that you do in your life are not just a product of you mustering up enough godliness to make good choices for the Lord. In fact, what the Bible describes is that the faith to believe in Jesus is the Spirit's work in your heart, preveniently, beforehand, to respond to the gospel and to pick Jesus instead of rejecting Jesus. And in the moments where you're growing in your faith, is it the 5 a.m. wake-up call where you read your Bible and then you did practice the acoustic guitar and then you did join the worship band and then like that was the product of your good choices that made you grow in your faith and use your gifts and make a difference in your life? No, even God's righteousness imputed to you, I'm using big words here, but given to you and then exercised through the Spirit's work in your heart, that's what causes righteousness in our lives. So even the good deeds in our sin nature are a product of God's provision through His Spirit in your heart, changing you enough to want Jesus and make righteous choices. So even God gets the credit for the little things in your life that are righteous. He guides me. He guides me in paths of righteousness. And then, of course, also at the end of verse 3, He does all of this for whose sake? For His sake. Because he gets the glory for all of it. Second, finishing well in life means that he is with us in his guiding presence. And I think uh, for the sake of time, the remainder of these points will go relatively quickly. So track with me on this. The second part of the psalm breaks in tone a bit when uh, David writes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. There is a fearlessness to be had in the Christian life. Why? Because God is with us. Independent from the other philosophies of life or the other religions of the world, the message of Jesus Christ is that God did not just uh, stay up on a cloud in heaven and demand good deeds from us. Instead, he came. He came to be with us. And so Jesus was God's very presence with us. And then what did Jesus say? Well, towards the end of his life, he starts to say, I'm not going to be with you all the time. But 
a greater advocate, a greater force in the world will come, and that is the Holy Spirit. And we see that at the beginning of the book of Acts. So we are able to have fearlessness in our life, not just because we muster up the fearlessness, but because God came. And no matter what happens in your life, you have God's presence with you. Nothing will change that. Um, in my wife finishing her pregnancy and then having a birth, uh, her parents, my wife's parents, flew in from the Congo. They're missionaries in the Congo, and uh, they're looking forward to kind of moving back to Orange County um, as they retire in the next year. But because they're at the end of their missionary career, they have lots and lots of interesting stories. And uh, we were just talking recently about a woman that my wife grew up knowing named Valerie. And Valerie was a missionary in the Congo, but her parents were famous missionaries in Ecuador. And uh, Valerie's mom was named Elizabeth, and her dad is named Jim. And they, um, at the age of, uh, I think, 28, Jim and Elizabeth uh, started feeling a calling to a particular tribe in Ecuador named the Alca tribe. And it was an unreached people group. Missionaries had never been to the group. And uh, so they flew over the tribe, uh, having learned uh, some amount of the language, just to yell out of a megaphone positive messages from the plane. And then they started flying around more often, and they landed on a sandbar in the middle of a river and set up camp there. And a few people from the Alka tribe spent time with them. They uh, gave them resources. They took a few people up in the plane and took them around and then landed back on the sandbar. And then through a weird kind of error in communication and some fear from the outside missionaries, the rest of the tribe came. And of the four men that uh, went to the Alka tribe and created the first missionary contact, all four of them were speared um, and were killed. And the plane was burned and the resources taken. Uh, as reports came back after this, um, you know, over time, as people got to know the tribe and what it was like at the time, it for years had been a, a really um, a vicious group of people who even internally were caught between cycles of retribution between different kind of subgroups within that tribe. People were speared often with the group. And so obviously a tragedy, obviously a valley of the shadow of death with these missionaries because they went to Bible school, they believed the Lord, they trusted God, they felt a calling to this people group and they visited and it was a, a powerful moment where they finally make contact with that group and then were obviously um, suddenly killed. And the life change in that whole situation of forgiveness and God's redemption only came because of the death. Because in the moment where Jim was the first to be speared, he alone had a gun on his hip for self-protection. And he pulled it out and he fired it. It, it didn't kill anyone because it was intention, his intention not to kill a, a person, even at, at the cost of his own death. And the rest of the men were also speared, trying to, uh, trying to say positive things, trying to ask for favor, trying to indicate to the people in some way that they weren't there to hurt them. But all of them uh, gave their lives. But the redemption for the Alka people only came because of their death. And this is indicated in a book by Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, in the book, Through the Gates of Splendor. She eventually makes contact through forgiveness and, and love for the Lord, but also love for these people. She makes safe contact um, with the Alka people. And then in time, visits them. And in time, develops a healthy relationship with them to communicate to them that she was the wife of these men, 
and that she forgave them. And that there is forgiveness from God himself through another person who gave his life to make contact with people whom God loves. And eventually, a large percentage of that tribe heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, and faith became pastors. And now that whole people group understands forgiveness and peace and how difficult retribution and tribalism in that way can be. And uh, it's indicated in the, in the books describing it. The, the point I want to make is that in the valley of the shadow of death, people constantly interviewed Elizabeth Elliot to ask, what do you make of this circumstance that you were newly married, new to have a kid, and then your, uh, your, your husband suddenly killed? And she had the gift of faith. She had an unwavering faith in the truth of the gospel because there, there was this like unchanging ability to say, if the Lord is my shepherd... I'll obey him in every circumstance, and I'll thank him for everything that he gives me. Even in that situation, she's able to say, I know God has a plan. From the onset of the situation saying, I am going back into that village, I know God has a plan for these people. The same thing is true with every situation in our life. Because of God's presence, and then as we finish out the psalm, because of his promise the thing that we know about God is he's with us. And in the midst of death, we know that at least we have a God who has also faced death on our behalf so that he will never leave us. And there's never a time in your life where you have to wonder, has God abandoned me? Because through Jesus Christ, the answer is no. He is there with you. I want to read John 10 just to close. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. This is the part that I love in John 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The command I received from my father. In verse 15, it says, I lay my, da- my life down for the sheep, but the Greek is ambiguous. It can just as likely be translated, something that we know happened with Jesus' life. I lay my life instead of the sheep. So in the end, finishing well, living fearless lives where we know God's presence is with us, where we praise God for every bit of his provision, where, uh, where every part of our life is shaped by uh, the end of the psalm, which we didn't get time to read about being at a table and relating to God and knowing God. All of that is, is, helps us to finish well because no matter the circumstance you're going through this morning, right now, the thing bubbling up in your stomach, the thing occupying your time, the relationship that's difficult for you, whatever the circumstance is, We know that there are hard truths about who God is as our shepherd, that he's with us, that he provides for us, and that he has promised us this identity and this life with him. Let's pray.